Sitting there as Rick was, was uh, you know, doing the notices, and I want to thank who, whoever did all these poinsettias, and, and the Christmas trees look particularly nice, probably because I haven't had anything to do with them whatsoever. And, uh, you know, I think a home group did that, and the decorations, uh, forgive me for not knowing who it was who did it, but I, I want to say thank you, that's really lovely. But actually, this Christmas, on Christmas Eve, we've got this carol thing in the atrium. I'm really excited about that. We've got a, several children are going to do a reading for us. Claire's been helping me with that. And then Mike Harden is going to be leading the carols. But we've, we've asked some of our classically trained musicians to, to take part in that. And, you know, they're, they're kindly beginning to agree to do that. And so it's, it should be an absolutely wonderful time. Now, I really want to encourage you parents... To, to, to bring your kids, and, and if they're running around going crazy, climbing up my leg, that's fine. On the one night of the year, you can do that. But, uh, but we're just going to come together as family, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm just so looking forward to that, that Christmas Eve carol service at 7 p.m. Might be a good thing to bring friends to even. So look out for that. Okay, well, tonight, today we are uh, starting, I was going to say a series. It's not really a series, but two Sundays looking at uh, the topic, what a night, and that's our, our Christmas sort of theme, what a night. And, and actually, you know, I, I love this image that, that, that they found in the office. Uh, it's just got that kind of party feel, and there's that kind of, you know, that, that, that sense of worship going on there. And also there's a sort of a star thing going on. I love that image, and we've used that in our publicity too. But, but actually, what a night can work both ways. I mean, sometimes what a night can be... You know, oh my gosh, I can't believe I actually danced in the fountain in Welling Garden City. You know, what a night that was, you know. Uh, it really is uh, one of the slight, slightly mixed feelings. In fact, you know that you've had too much Christmas cheer when you pick up a bread roll and butter your watch. And uh, you know when you've had too much Christmas cheer when you offer to give the rubber plant a lift home. And uh, you know you've had too much Christmas cheer when you say... You announce, this part is boring and I'm going home. Only to find out it's your home you're in. So those kind of things kind of, uh, you know, can kind of be the other side of Christmas. The, if you like, the darker side of Christmas. And actually probably the worst thing about a party is, is waking up in bed with a stranger. Mind you, when I was a teenager, to be absolutely honest, before I was a Christian, if I woke up in bed after a party and mum brought me a cup of tea, that was not a good, uh, a good day. <laughs> but this little clip we're going to see is about waking up in bed with a stranger. But I should say, in fairness to Steve Martin and John Candy, what's happened here is that they're trying to get home to their families. And a great snowstorm breaks in, and suddenly the, the, the airport shut down. And everybody, everybody's going to the phones to try and get a hotel room. And John Candy and Steve Martin, completely sort of not friends or anything, just fellow travellers, get the last hotel in the last motel and discover that they have to share a room. I hate sharing rooms with strangers. Anybody else agree with that? You know, if you've got a conference or a seminar and you have to share, I hate that. I absolutely hate that. This is worse. They get into the room and there's only one double bed. This is the morning. Let's watch this clip. I 
Guys, one of my favourite movies: Planes, Trains, and autom- Automobiles. If it's if it's like that after, you know, after Christmas, uh, if it's on the on the TV, watch it. It's great fun. You know, sometimes though, the the the, the night, the party night, is followed by the morning, and all sorts of things go pear shaped. What about this little clip? Thank you. Can we have the volume up a little bit louder? On the- funny (laughs) what a night and actually on this two week series really thinking about the Christmas story I want to I want to actually start really with a little bit of the dark side you know we're in a a credit crunch there's folk here are struggling with that and some of us are worrying about our jobs too But actually, you know, this kind of cycle, as many people are telling us, is not new. Do you realize that 2,700 years ago, there were problems? And Isaiah, speaking to Israel during a time of great pressure and stress, spoke these words. Let's have the the reading up, please. Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoicing at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let me just pray. Father, we face many challenges in our society, in our culture, and indeed in our world. And Lord, at this time, when many are looking for answers, when many are offering answers, we pray, Lord God, that we will center on you, the living God, who is the answer. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On the, the, those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You know, 2,700 years ago, if you were celebrating this season, this midwinter season, you would be pretty sober. You would be listening out for news. Every time a traveler came into your village or town, you would, you would run to the square to hear the latest because Israel was going through a very, very tough time. They had a new king, and, and, and two years after he had come to the throne, even though they were, you know, they were sort of, he was just beginning to get his feet under the table, when rumors came, rumors that were just terrifying, that the Assyrian despot king, Tilgath-Pileser III, was invading the northern kingdoms. And in fact, before they even blinked an eye, he had already overrun the two northern regions, the two northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. Galilee, some of us would, would recognize that word. It was the place where Jesus actually did most of his ministry. It was a terrifying time, a time of uncertainty. You didn't know whether today was the day when a, a, a band of brigands would come over the, the horizon and carry your children away to be slaves and your wife, for goodness knows what. It was a time of great uncertainty, a, a time of oppression, a time when, when you really didn't think you could make plans for anything. Your only plan and prayer was, God, let me get through today. Maybe some of you are in that kind of place. God, let me get through today. And then 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was born, this season that we celebrate, what was happening in Galilee in first century Palestine at that time? Well, do you know, it, it really wasn't an awful lot different. If you were a peasant farmer, as most people were, you would have to, every year, grow grain to feed your family. You would have to grow grain to pay your temple tax. You would grow grain to feed your draft animals, the, the oxen that pulled your plow. This was for the year. You would have to grow a little bit extra so that you could trade it, so you could buy oil, so that you could buy other essentials. And to be honest with you, for the peasant farmer, everything depended upon the weather, the harvest. Whether there was a, an uprising of, of blight that year, whether there were, were locusts that year, it was the, the most tenuous of circumstances for many. If you were a fisherman, you lived a little better. But if you were a farmer, it was a struggle. And then on top of all of this, the Romans came in and took over. The dreaded Romans, the, the Tilgath-Pileser III of the day, the Roman, the Roman Empire. And they came in and with brutality, characteristic brutality, they, they brought in the Pax Romanus, 
the Roman peace. There's an irony for you. Once things settled down, once the people had been subjugated and the spirit whipped out of them, maybe a peace of sorts settled. But for the peasant farmer in his day, he was struggling. It was tough before the Romans came and their taxes. But now it was impossible. And at Jesus' time, we read that, that there were uprisings. Young lads would get together and they would start talking and, uh, and then they would get stirred up and then a leader would emerge and, uh, and 160 of them had been slaughtered a couple of years when Jesus was around about 29, 30 years of old. This was a common occurrence. There would be an uprising. Why? Because they were difficult, awkward people. No, because they were starving. They were struggling. They were experiencing a credit crunch of unbelievable and staggering and life-threatening proportions. Today, of course, there's much that threatens our, our way of life. Is it ever going to be the same again? Are these bailouts going to work? Do, do, do our, our politicians really know what they're doing? Are, are we going to have a job this time of it, it, next year? Who knows? I'm not going to sow more fear because, quite frankly, there's plenty of people doing a good enough job of that. But into this situation, into this situation comes this prophetic word from, from Isaiah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow, a light has dawned. I was talking to a number of pastors this week at a prayer meeting I hold on, on Wednesdays and and they were reporting back to me that actually there's a, everybody seems, to, most people seem to be doing okay, but there is a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. They, each of them reported that there seemed to be what they called a shadow over the hearts of the people. And we talked about that. We talked about the Christmas message. We talked about the message of the angels. And we'll look, look at that next week. You know, joy. And this year, on two or three occasions, I've talked about joy. You know, joy isn't about circumstances. Joy transcends circumstances. More of that and, and more next week. But they were saying in their communities how there is a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. There is a shadow. And, and who did Isaiah say to those those? Those Israeli peasants 2,750 odd years ago. Who did, who, who did the, the rabbis and teachers look to and, and, and reference 2,000 years ago? They looked to this, this, this deliverer God. Who was going to send this unique individual. Who was going to be a, a wonderful counsellor. A wonderful counsellor. Now, now that, that sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounds good. But actually, in its context and in the Hebrew, it has a particular meaning. Wonderful counsellor refers to someone who is divine because this, this is a, no single person can solve this problem of Tilgath Pileser III coming over the hills or the Roman occupation or a bunch of young hot-headed lads in the back end of Galilee. If God was to intervene, and, and Isaiah says, he is coming, he is sending one. 
And he is a wonderful counselor. He has divine wisdom, supernatural insight, godly counsel. There is something of the divine about him. He will know what to do. You know, uh, I I don't know about you, but I'm almost at the point of, of not watching the news. I'm a news junkie. I, 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 first thing I do when I get up, I go down and make a cup of tea, I turn on Radio 4, listen to the Today program. When I'm at home, I, uh, if I come home for lunch, I'll, I'll, I'll watch the news at, at one. Uh, you know, I, I, I watch the 24-hour news channel. I even go online. That's, I'm really a sad person. Catch up on the latest, you know. If you watch a lot of news, you know that the stories are repeated incessantly. But I'm a bit of a news junkie. But I'm beginning to get to the point where I just actually don't want any more news because it's not good news, it's bad news. And it really is rather depressing. Anybody agree with me? It really is. It really is depressing, you know. Maybe I'm just going to get a Saturday newspaper and read the news once a week or something. I I know a pastor friend, some of you know the guy, Barry Kissel. I think he's possibly retired now, but he actually was a news junkie. But he actually got to the point where he said, I'm not going to look at the news anymore. It's just depressing me. And for about six weeks, he had a fast, what he called a fast, from the news. It's a new idea. And he just prayed. The same amount of time he would spend listening or reading the paper or watching the news, he just spent a little time praying. He said he prayed a lot more than he ever did. <laughs> but, but as you listen to the news, as I am still doing at the moment, you know, Alistair Darling, our Chancellor of the Exchequer, puts forward something. You know, we, we, we put great hope. In our Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, because he has this background of, 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 you know, of, of managing to, to handle the economy well. And, th- and then we hear you know, the European Communion criticizing our, our policies. And we think, oh my gosh, have we got it right? And you know, it's very, very, very worrying. Has any one person got the answer? No. We need a wonderful counselor. There's a relevance to this message. There is a relevance to it, a pertinence to it. The second thing that this individual that that Isaiah says is going to come as our deliverer is that, yes, you heard it, you know it, he's going to be a mighty God. And the way that is used in the text, it really does, you know, God is going to come like a hero. He's going to be the John Wayne character. Hooray, thank you. He's not going to be the Alan Partridge character. If you know that character. He's going to be the, the, the hero. He's going to come as a deliverer. And actually Isaiah references Israel's history in the past. He, talk, he talks about, you know, you know, just in the days when Midian was our ruler. God raised up and God came and God delivered us. And that's just reference to another bad time in Israel's history when they were overrun by the Midianites. And although he worked with Gideon and other other people, it was essentially God's victory, God's deliverance that, that brought about Israel's freedom from that particular oppressive regime. So yes, God is going to come as a mighty God, a superhero type, an Iron Man, Superman, whatever. The third aspect or character trait in this, in this deliverer, this Messiah is the term that begins to be used, is that he's going to be an everlasting father. And I love that. And in some ways it inspired my, 
my little introduction to the communion, this sense of, of, of parenthood uh, and, and the love and the tenderness that one feels towards one's own children. And so this everlasting father will, will, will be all the, you know, the big things, the superhero thing, but he's also going to be kindly and tender. He's going to be strong. He's going to be protective. And the scripture actually many times talks of God's tenderness. You know, very often I find that, that people find the idea that God is kindly and tender one of the most challenging of thoughts. It may be because of our own background and experience, so we may be cutting and pasting our own experience of a parent that was anything but kind and tender. That may be your experience, and, and we've often found that these things are sort of transferred. But actually, Scripture doesn't paint a picture of God as a, a domineering and hostile and authoritative an angry God, as, as the father of his people, he's tender, he's gentle. In, in, in the book of Hosea, another prophet in the Old Testament, God himself says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, I tended for him. And there's this picture of a, a father, that the picture that the prophet paints is of God bending down, to kind of steady a toddler taking its first steps. My granddaughter, who, of whom I'm very proud, isn't here this morning, maybe at the next service. She is uh, just taking her first steps. And it began with, with her standing. And she would, she would sit in the middle of the floor and she would stand up and then like this. And when she got a balance, then she'd go, yay! And everybody had to clap. And then she'd plump down. And then this slow, laborious process with, with her going like this. And then she would stand up. And then when she was ready and she was composed, she'd go, yay! And now she's taking these first steps. And your heart leaps. And there's a, a smile in, 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 on everyone's face. And Hosea paints this wonderful picture of that's how God is with us. A father tenderly encouraging us. Come on, come on. Yay! It's a wonderful, tender picture. And one we need to recapture, as well as the fear and awe and respect and honor that is due God's name. These, these three words in the Hebrew all have this sense of divinity. It's God's gig, this. Indeed, the end of this passage which I read says, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And that basically means this one's on God. Okay? I know you're struggling here. This one's on God, says the prophet Isaiah to his people 2,700 years ago. This one's on God. He'll sort it. Trust it. But the last one is new. The last of these descriptions. Prince of Peace. Now this one is perhaps the most familiar to us, even if we don't have a Christian background, because very often our Christmas cards are emblazoned with the, you know, the title, the tag, Prince of Peace. But, but actually, in Jewish thinking, in, in Hebrew, that Prince of Peace is so much richer than just having a nice, quiet, 
you know, Christmas Day with a bit of turkey and, and, and a mince pie or two and perhaps a glass of your favorite beverage, whatever that is. That sense of well-being, stomach full, warm clothes, good company. It, it's more than comfort. Prince of Peace, that word is, is, shol, is, is, is really shalom. And those of you who have a Jewish background or have Jewish friends and relatives will know that this, this concept of shalom, it doesn't translate too easily into English. It, it is a whole well-being. It is peace and comfort, freedom from, you know, annoying neighbors or whatever. But it's more than that. It, it, it's a well-being of mind, body, and spirit. It's a sense of wholeness. It's prosperity too. So those struggling peasants in first century Palestine would have, would have latched onto that one. When the Messiah comes, then we won't be... We won't be as hard-pressed as this. We won't have to sell off our inheritance. That's how bad it had become. They were mortgaging the family jewels. I've told you this story. I have a sense of loss about it. But I've told you this story many times before. But <coughs> when I was in business, I had a, a, an accountant that didn't do his job very well. And I got presented with an, a very large tax um, bill. And... Uh, as a result of that, I had inherited some antiques and, and I had to take them to auction. And these, these things had been in my family for you know, several, not several, but at least four generations. And I had to, if you like, uh, sell the family jewels to meet my, my tax commitments. And I kept saying to my accountant, how can this happen? I mean, man, you've been handling my affairs for X number of years. I mean, what, what, why have I got hit by this? I don't know. And he gave me a load of technical stuff. Anyway, the long and the short of it was that when that transaction was all done and dusted and my inheritance disappeared over the horizon at an auction house, I, I just didn't like the way this, this accountant had, had handled. So I decided to change. And I, I went to Coopers and LeBrand, as it was called then, and got, took them off. And, and they gave me a bit of a sort of a 5,000-mile so service, and they checked over my accounts, and they said, this tax thing, did you, did you pay that? I said, yeah. You paid this? Why did you pay this? I said, well, because my accountant told me how to pay it. Oh, my goodness. I, okay, okay, don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll get it back for you. I said, what do you mean you'll get it back for me? Well, you've, you've overpaid thousands of pounds. Don't worry, we'll, we'll, it's, it won't be, we'll get it. And within about three or four weeks, it wasn't long, I, I had this check back. That was not the point. I'd sold my family inheritance. It could never be come back to me. It was gone. French Ormolu vases, Chipperfield furniture, it had gone. A beautiful Parisian clock went. And I got a check. I was a bit, I think the expression was ticked off, but it might not have been ticked off, but <laughs> might have been something a little earthier, but I was a bit ticked off. The, Palace, the Palestinian Galilean peasants of the day were having to sell the family inheritance because of the oppression, because of the shadow that was on the land. Man, did they need a Messiah. This Prince of Peace that wouldn't just rescue the nation, that wouldn't just, you know, just have great counsel, but, 
but yeah, would be a father to them that would, would actually bring, and bring to their lives a new equilibrium, a transcendent joy, a wholeness, a sense of well-being, shalom. Wonderful image. No wonder this, no wonder this particular reading, this Christmas, will be read right across the country. In carol services, the country over. It will probably be the first reading, if not the first, the second. Because it's central to the message of the gospel. God brings shalom. God is our everlasting father. He looks upon us with tenderness and with kindness. What a night. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. You can imagine what the harvest was like in those days. We, of course, have lost that kind of sense because we live in an urban environment. But, but still, in little corners of our, our country, the harvest is celebrated. And, of course, in two-thirds worlds, it, it's celebrated with great further and excitement. What a party, what a time. Just turn to your neighbor, just think back for a minute, putting you on the spot. Think back to one of the best parties you ever went to. Just turn to your neighbor and and just tell each other what that is. Just one minute. Best party you ever went to. There's lots of smiles. Lots of smiles. Okay. What a party, what a celebration when God sends his Savior. You know, that's right. That's why we should celebrate the birth of Jesus. That's not that we wouldn't want to. I mean, Rick says we don't do... Uh, Sundays, uh, you know, Christmas days, and, and actually what we do do is something I think very special. We, you know, when people sometimes come up to me, you know, uh, what about a service on Christmas Day then? And I say to them, I turn it round, so I'm giving a little bit of a heads up and a warning here. I say, you, you, you li- you'd like service on, on Christmas Day? And they say, yeah, yeah, I'd like service. I say, well, great, well, you can go and peel a load of potatoes for our free Christmas dinner for, for the homeless and single and, and people. So it gets turned around on them. So I, that's the kind of service I think is great on, on Christmas Day. Sure, we can sing a few carols, but, you know, I, I know that God loves the kind of thing that, that Richard and Tara and the team set up for us here. And I always slip away from my family, come down here on a Christmas Day for an hour or so and just hang out. It's just a wonderful thing. It's the spirit of Christmas. It's wonderful. Thank you, guys. Thank you for facilitating that, giving up your day so that others can have a day. Now, that's worship. That's worship. It's true religion. I think God might get a bit bored of the carols after a while, but that's true religion. It really is. So we have this Prince of Peace. What a night. You know, this child is born. But one has to ask... Well, who's going to do this? How? I, I, I know many of you have in, enjoyed sort of suspending disbelief and going with me on this, but 
At the end of the day, if, if, if the zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish this, if, if God's going to do it, if, if this is going to be his gig, if he's going to push through the crowd and pick up the bill, if he's going to rescue us, who is it? How? What? Why? Well, next screen, please. Unto us a child is born. Oh, great! Sorry? What about superhero? What about John Wayne? Unto us a child is born. And not just any child, another peasant child, as if we didn't have enough of them anyway. A child born of a single parent. Yes, dear old Joseph stood beside, stood with Mary, but this is a teen, another teen mum. And this is Israel's deliverer. This is Israel's wonderful counselor. This is our mighty God. (laughs) This is our everlasting father. But he's a baby in case you didn't notice. This is our prince of peace. You see, no one could have foretold what God was going to do. Not even the prophets. In fact, the scripture says... But that both the prophets and the angels kind of tried to eavesdrop on God because they didn't know how he was going to do it. But when this child was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, 2,000 years ago, the angels celebrated. Wise men came from the east. Shepherds had encounters that they could not explain. Aging prophetesses in the temple who'd spent 70 years worshipping God. Their hearts missed a beat when the child was presented in the temple. Something in this God-attuned spirit of theirs went, He's the one. And for 30 years he disappeared into obscurity. But then as it were out of the desert, out of the back end of beyond, out of nowhere, this nobody comes trundling in. And what does he do? He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He speaks in a way that everyone can understand. It's plain. It's not convoluted. It's not... Clever. It's tender. There's a kindness. He's like a he's like a father, an everlasting father. When I'm with Jesus, I don't know. I begin to believe that we might just make it. He brings shalom with him. The people crowded to him initially in their hundreds but laterly, laterly in their thousands this, this baby this child this one born in a stable this Jesus even his name wasn't that special it was special and it means savior deliverer but actually every other's kid was called Jesus or savior Still, the custom in many parts of the world today. But actually, in this insignificant, unexpected event, 
God sent a saviour. Not a new president. I'm excited about the new president-elect Barack Obama. But God didn't send a new president. God didn't send a new bailout plan. A new economist, a new economic idea, a new system, capitalism, communism, socialism, whatism. Jesus sent a, was a baby. God sent a child, the most powerless, the most insignificant, not even a prince. But all the more impressive, all the more poignant and exciting... Because in this child, God brought in the Savior of the world. Next week, we're going to continue the story and zero down on that that night. What a night that was. Please, you know, bring your friends. Let's not have uh, an empty seat in this place. You all have friends who need to be here. Colleagues, co-workers, relatives, neighbors. Get them along. They need to hear this message of hope. And if, if we can do that, if we'll share that, well, who knows? There might be others who this Christmas, not 2,700 years ago in Israel, Galilee, Naphtali, where's that for heck's sake? Not 2,000 years ago in Galilee, in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, wherever. But here, 